very sorry to say that in, in Great Britain, 80% of the Pentecostal ministers, 80% of the Elam and Assemblies of God ministers should not be ministers. 80%. That's not what I say. That's what God says. There was a meeting last year of Assemblies of God ministers in the West Midlands where they had a meeting and they said, the person who addressed it, and the, the regional superintendent was there, about how we have to leave the manna and the wilderness so we can walk in the Spirit. Now the Bible says we have to, have to eat all the manna every day. And at the end of the meeting, at the end of this address, the Assemblies of God ministers sat next to each other in pairs and they prayed that the power of the manna would be broken in each other's lives and ministries. This is a regional conference of Assemblies of God ministers and they were praying that the power of the manna would be broken. <laughs> And these are the leaders. Do you understand why they're in trouble? They were praying that the power of the manna would be broken. What a thing for anybody to pray. Well, all ministers were going to shepherd others. We pray that the power of the manna would be broken so you can walk in the Spirit. If you don't have the manna, you're not going to have the Spirit. Remember? The cloud moved sometimes and sometimes it didn't. But if the people were eating the manna, the cloud wasn't going to move. <laughs> These guys are crazy. Absolute morons. Totally crazy. He praised. 80% of the Pentecostal ministers in the country are like that. 80%. Some kind of lunatic. I'm a, I'm a, I go to one of somebody's a God church. Mine isn't like that. But uh, most of them are. Sound shocking? They did it. I'm only telling the truth. And then they say, I have a wrong spirit for protesting it. You can't be an apostle without right doctrine. You can't be a prophet without right doctrine. You can't be a pastor without right doctrine. You can't be a teacher without right doctrine. And you can't be an evangelist without right doctrine. We have so much bad Christianity, and perhaps the first reason so many people who make processions of faith fall away is because the evangelistic ministry to which they came to Christ had a shallow doctrinal foundation. Jesus never said, make converts. He said, make disciples. That's a big problem. I had a meeting with my friend Barry Smith the other night in his hotel, and I'm saying, Barry, you know, there's people getting saved at your meetings going into these loony churches. He agrees in principle, but when it comes to practice, it's not so easy. What do you do with people? Now let's look at these things. So far we said to know your ministry, to know your gifting in terms of ministry, will be the word, the rima and the logos. Now, some time ago, I did a word study on the three Greek words for the word in the Bible. Rhema, Logos, and Evangelion. They are used interchangeably. Keith Parker did a paper on Logos and Rhema, and he points out the same thing they use interchangeably. He's right. When I say Rhema and Logos, I'm simply using it in terms of its popular usage. You know what I'm saying? Technically, it's hard to make that kind of a distinction. To say that, the written word is the logos, the doctrine, and the rima is the personal, subjective, revelatory, revelatory word. It's not easy to make that distinction from the Greek. You can make it partly, but only partly. It's an oversimplification. Nonetheless, I'm simply using the popular way of looking at it to draw a distinction between personal words and doctrine. I did a study myself, and I would, my conclusions match up with those of Keith Parker, but that's a separate subject. We can make a distinction between personal words and doctrine. Then there is providence, the opening and closing of doors. Then there is the place for sanctified reason, subordinate to the leading of the Spirit. This is important, the idea of reason. Laodicea in Greek means people's opinions. People's opinions. Yes, it is a lukewarm church. Yes, it is a church that thinks it is well off spiritually because it's well off materially. Yes, Laodicea corresponds to Western evangelicism. That's true. But Laodicea means people's opinions. 
Most of the doctrines of Toronto are based on people's opinions, not the Word of God. Most of deliverance ministry is based not on the Word of God, it's based on people's opinions. Most of our pneumatology and theology of the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit is not based on doctrine, it's based on people's opinions. When human reason stops becoming a servant and becomes a master, you're heading for trouble. Now, one example, some of you know, it was David Carr in uh, London. He said to me, I know, I know that uh, most of these phenomena at Toronto are not in the Bible, but microwave ovens and toasters aren't in the Bible, and they're wrong, so why should the barking like dogs and the rest of it be? That was his argument. And of course, my response was 1 Corinthians 4, 6, do not exceed the things which are written. You're burning strange fire. Once you begin unbiblical worship, you begin contra-biblical worship. Nonetheless, the next way, after providence and reason, is counsel. Counsel. Remember, there were a plurality of leaders in Antioch. The safety and an abundance of counselors. If you're making a major decision, yes, you should talk to your pastor. But if you limit yourself to one person for a major decision, you're making a mistake. Even the medical profession admits, do not make a major surgical decision based on the opinion of one consultant. Most consultants for their own protection insist on getting a second opinion before they will perform a very complicated operation. It's the same thing. There's safety and an abundance of counselors. However, there are people that God will tend to speak through. People who are a natural authority relationship to us. For the people God will speak through, first of all. When I had this situation in July when these people prophesied I was going to commit adultery within three months because I was against Toronto, I went to my pastor. And God spoke to me through my pastor. A wife, what's it say? Moses told them, your husband's voice will be the voice of God for you. Women have a tremendous advantage. Adam said she did it. <laughs> God said, no, you did it. <laughs> husband is the authority in the relationship. She can literally pin it on him. Parents. Sometimes even unsafe parents, simply because they're parents. There are sources of counsel. And those people who are natural authority relationships to us, like pastors, like husbands, people like that, parents, will be the first and foremost God will speak to. So you go from the Word, to providence, to reason, to counsel, and then you come to prophecy. Somebody prophesies over you and says this. Is there a biblical basis for that? There absolutely is. However, let's look at it. When Simeon and Anna prophesied about Jesus, they only prophesied the same thing Gabriel did, didn't they? When Gabriel appeared to the father of John the Baptist, whatever angel, and told him about John, he was only saying what Malachi did. It was prophesied about Samuel. In the Bible, when prophetic ministry is used to give somebody direction. It is confirmed by at least two things. One is all the other stuff I told you about. The word, providence, reason, counsel. And two, it is more than one prophetic voice, isn't it? 
Watch out for somebody coming along, giving you a word, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do the other thing, and that becomes your basis to walk in faith. Look out for it. It is not biblical. It is potentially dangerous and often stupid. And very often, the person telling you that stuff has got rocks in their head anyway. Yes, it is biblical for God to give people direction through prophetic voice. But it is not through prophetic voice alone. And it is not through one prophetic voice. It simply becomes one of several ways to which God testifies to his will and purpose. Not only that, look at the prophets. Look at the person. How credible are they as a prophetic voice? Look at their doctrine. Look at their lives. Look at their track record as a prophet. Young Chow came. Young Chow came to this country and began giving ministers prophetic words including our friend in Nottingham, he got a word from Young Yi Chow. Young Yi Chow! Young Yi Chow changed his name from David to Paul or Paul to David. Didn't want to be an apostle anymore, wanted to be a king or something. I go to the Far East once, twice a year. You see these things in Bangkok and Singapore. You can see them in Korea and Japan. The Buddhist prosperity cults using visualization based on Buddhist shamanism. You see that you're right on the street corner in Singapore, they get the incense and they follow the formula. And you go this way, and then you go this way, and you visualize what you want, and then you tell the... And you... It comes from the Hinduistic and Buddhist concept that the subconscious imagination is the spirit of man. Our spirit is not our subconscious imagination. Our spirit is not our subconscious imagination. It's not biblical. Our subconscious imagination is defiled like the rest of us. And Young Yi Chow in his book, The Fourth Dimension, says, Hindus and Buddhists have known this for centuries, but now Jesus Christ has shown it to me. The man is a Gnostic. The man is teaching not Christianity, he's teaching paganism, he's teaching Buddhism in Christian masquerades. Young Yi Chao is a Buddhist. He does not teach Christianity, he teaches Buddhism. I make no judgment about his personal relationship with Jesus. I don't know, I'm not saying he's not born again and never has been. What I am saying is what he teaches is not Christian. He's not a Christian minister, he's a Buddhist minister. And he admits it. Because he has the second biggest church in the world after the Pope, people in the West are impressed. You know what? By the standards of Asia, where he comes from, he's relatively small. These Buddhist prosperity cults, there's huge ones in Korea. He's no big deal in Korea. They all have it. You understand? It's only people in the West get sucked in and impressed by this stuff. You ever hear of Yan Xian? Yeah. What do you call Quingang? Chinese mysticism. Quingang? Oh, millions of people have got the laughing spirit. At the same time, the laughing spirit was overtaking countries like Britain and New Zealand and Australia. Didn't get that big in America or Canada, by the way. Or South Africa. It wasn't that big where it comes from. Only big in other places like Britain and Australia is where it's big. Somewhere between 50 and 60 million Chinese got it in China. The laughing phenomena. 50 or 60 million followers of Chan Tien. He's the Rodney Brown of China, only he's not a Christian who doesn't proclaim to be. Rajesh Bhagwani? He's dead. He had the laughing revival in India. Millions and millions and millions. So because something is big and popular, it must be of God. <laughs> what we think of big as popular... It's not that big or that popular. You go to Asia where there's a lot of people. <laughs> With Rodney Brown, John Arnott, believe me, you're talking small time. <laughs> Any anti stuff. God must love Chinese people, otherwise he wouldn't make so many of them. They're all over the place. 
<laughs> There's millions of them. They're living on top of each other. You go to Hong Kong and these places, you wouldn't believe that people could get... I mean, yeah, how many Chinese people can you get in a closet? That's their apartment. It's un- unbelievable. There's millions of them. It's only in the West this stuff impresses people. Yet this guy who comes along, who teaches Buddhism, he gives these pastors words. These are pastors. You understand? These are shepherds, men who lead congregations. So if you get the leaders to come under this Buddhist influence, the New Age visualization influence, they bring it to their churches, don't they? They are teaching visualization now in Christian Bible colleges. I was in Melbourne, Australia, this guy Alan Davies, who's from Wales, he's the president of a Bible college in a Pentecostal Bible college. Bible College in Melbourne, Australia, he was using teaching the students visualization techniques. How can the church stop the advance of new age in society when we can't even stop it in the church when we're rolling out the red carpet for it? You understand? How can we raise the banner of the gospel against Eastern religion when we're turning Christianity into an Eastern religion? And somebody like this gives you a prophetic word and they believe it. If God's going to give you a direction through a prophetic word, look at everything, including the prophets. Look at his doctrine. Where where is he coming from? What does he believe? Where is he coming from? Additionally, remember, Paul knew from the beginning what he was going to do. King David knew from the time he was a little boy, didn't he? But it wasn't until God worked it out providentially that it came to fruition. You don't have to run with the vision until God tells you to run. And in fact, when it's time to run, you're going to run anyway. Watch out for people coming along, giving you a word, and you take one word from one person, and that becomes what determines God's calling on your life. That's dangerous. It is one way God speaks in conjunction with other ways. And when he speaks that way, look at the source of the prophecy and don't rely on any one prophet. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians. Verse 29 of chapter 12. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? Pay attention. These things have to do with degrees. You may not be a pastor. I'm not a pastor. I don't have a pastor's gift. If I plant a church or a fellowship, once it's established, I should step out of leadership and go plant another one or at least stay on the sidelines and let somebody else run it. Well, I often say, if I was a pastor, if I was a shepherd, we'd be having lamb chops for dinner every night. (laughs) I have a pastor. If I have a problem, I call up my pastor, Jeff Windsor, or somebody else. However, just because I am not a pastor does not mean I'm not a leader, and it does not mean that I'm not pastor of my own house. Every Christian father and every Christian husband is still called to be the shepherd of his own wife and children. You understand? Every Christian father and husband is a little pastor. Every one of them. Every Christian wife is a deaconess. Every one. Secondly, we're not all teachers. That's true. We don't all have the gift of teaching. But that doesn't mean that when you pray and read the Bible that the Holy Spirit's not going to speak to you and show you things and illuminate the Word for you. 
and give you understanding of doctrine. No, you may not have the anointing or the gifting to communicate it to others in that way, but that does not mean that you are reliant on somebody else to get things from the Word. Yes, God uses teachers as a channel, but one is your teacher who's in heaven. The same Holy Spirit who speaks to a teacher opens your eyes, your mind, and your heart when you read God's Word. No, you might not be a teacher, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get understanding. It's true, we are not all evangelists. Not everybody can stand up in front of a large group and evangelize in that way. Not everybody can do that. But when I see Christians that will only witness if somebody asks them, Well, I'll just live a Christian life. I'll be a witness. I don't have to witness. Sorry, that's a cop-out. That's only step one. There's nobody who cannot take the initiative to engage people in one-on-one evangelistic conversations. There's nobody who cannot go witnessing. There's nobody who cannot give their testimony. There's nobody who cannot disseminate tracts. There is nobody who cannot go fishing with a rod. We can't all go fishing with nets. I grant you that. We cannot all go fishing with nets. But there's nobody with a little practice cannot use a fishing rod. Anybody can witness one-on-one. Anybody. Children do it. Little kids do it. Anybody can do it. No, we're not all evangelists, but that doesn't mean you don't witness. No, we're not all teachers. That does not mean that God does not open your eyes to his word. No, we're not all pastors. That does not mean you're not the shepherd of your family. You understand? Let's go back to this thing. As I pointed out, foundational to all of these ministries was right doctrine. I heard a crazy woman on a tape prophesying against Pancanograph in America. By the way, we have his book here, and we have it at a discount, 10 pounds. If there's any book that you need, how much? 950. If there's any book that every Christian I know in this country should have right now, it's a copy of that thing. That's why we've got a lot of them and we got them cheap to make them as cheap as probably you'll pay 15 or something in the bookshop, I guess. We got them from under, under 10. We went to America to get them. Mark Havel got them from us in the States because we want to make them widely available to people. Christianity in Crisis, you should get that book. I'm not trying to make a sale. We're not making anything on it. We, we discounted things, but we we need them to be read by people. You should all have that book, if you can. And she's prophesying against him. Woe to him who will compromise love for the truth. (laughs) She's admitting he's telling the truth and attacking him for saying it. This woman on this tape. She says, by virtue of the fact that he says something, even though it's true, he's he's lacking love and God goes, this is crazy. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. Doesn't mean they're not his people. Don't let anybody tell you right doctrine is not important. You know what that's like saying? You'll need a right attitude of the heart. That's like somebody coming along saying, Oh, I feel compassion on this sick person. And this sick person is dying. And I'm going to take care of this sick person. I'm just going to give him any dosage of the medication that I think is right, and just because I love him, he's going to get well. God will honor it. And you wind up giving the person the wrong dosage, or you wind up giving him where he's going to have a pharmacological interaction with some other medication, or an allergic reaction that you didn't take into account, and you killed the person. Your motive, your intentions might be totally right. You may have a genuine compassion and a pure heart willingness to help this sick person, this dying person. But if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to kill them. Don't let anybody tell you that right doctrine is anything less than absolutely foundational. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. At best, what you wind up with is Laodicea, the church of people's opinions, instead of God's word. Why is Christianity floundering in the West? Because it's Laodicea. Because it's materialistic and lukewarm? Yes. But why? People's opinions. 
We live in an affluent materialistic society, so we invent doctrines to accommodate that. God wants you rich. Name it and claim it. Here's the credit card. That's all it is. Let few of you be teachers, for teachers will be judged more strictly than the rest. We have in the Messianic Fellowship in Leeds a young Christian doctor, Emma. She's an anesthesiologist in training. She's been going to school for like uh, 10 years. And every time we turn around, she has another big exam. Pray for Emma's exams. One course to another, one seminar to another, working brutal hours. She makes one mistake, anesthetizing somebody and they're dead. In medical colleges, they teach you that the most important thing in an operation is not necessarily the surgeon, it's the anesthesiologist. The surgeon has to just watch what he's doing in the surgery, but the anesthesiologist has to watch all of homeostasis. Isn't that correct, doctor? She makes one mistake, that's it! One mistake. Let few of you be teachers, for teachers will be judged more strictly than the rest. I am going to give account more than you when I stand in front of Jesus. He's going to hold me more accountable than he holds you. You know that? Unless you have the gift of teaching, he's going to hold me more accountable. I'm going to be more accountable than you when we meet Jesus. I'm more accountable now. If I teach God's people error, even if I teach the right thing with the wrong motive, it would be like Emma anesthetizing somebody with an anesthetic to which they have an allergic reaction and kill them. It's not good enough to have right motives. Paul talks about it. He talks about knowledge. Not the world's knowledge, but God's knowledge. He talks about wisdom. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. You want to walk in the dark, you better make sure you can see, or you're going to trip. And that's what you see. You see people tripping all over the place. Once again, in each one of these ministry callings, foundational, foundational, was a right understanding of Scripture. Apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, even evangelist. No way. Look at the epistles. Galatians, what's Paul addressing? Wrong doctrine. Why? Wrong doctrine led to wrong practice in Galatia. Look at Thessalonians. What's Paul addressing? Wrong doctrine. Why? Wrong doctrine leads to wrong practice. First Corinthians, what's Paul addressing? Wrong doctrine. Why? Wrong doctrine leads to wrong practice. As a result, God's people get hurt. The church gets hurt. Our capacity to reach the lost gets hurt. If there's a need in the church today, it's to go back to right teaching. If people are saying, we only need love. I know the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God in Australia has taught a great deal of error. Andrew Evans. The man is just like a, 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 virtually a, a merchant of error. And when he gets accosted, when anyone challenges him, because he's teaching people things that are going to hurt people, he says, well, I'm a people person, I'm not really a Bible person. That's his argument. That is like a medical doctor going around with a bag of medication, not knowing what he's doing, not knowing who to inject with what. He's just a people person. He's practicing medicine because he has compassion for the sick. Also, his brother-in-law is an undertaker and gives him a kickback for every client he sends. 
Jesus warns about false teachers. Peter, they, they keep going on about this, the apostles. If you don't know right doctrine, you're going to be deceived. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be an expert in everything. But if you know the foundational truths, if you know the foundational truths, you'll be able to detect most error. You know that? Most of the error people are being taken into today, like name it and claim it, is because they don't know the foundational truth. If you know the basics, you'll know when something is wrong. You know the basics. You don't have to be an expert in exegesis or Greek or Hebrew. You just have to know the basic doctrines of the Bible. The epistles are written for ordinary people. Ordinary people of average intelligence like you and me can read those things and understand the basics. Without knowing any Greek, or at least very little, you don't have to. All you need is a Christ-centered life and his word. Reasonable intelligence, and that's it. My people perish for lack of knowledge. In China, there was actually people for lack of knowledge... They were chopping off their hands and plucking out their eyes. Didn't understand what that thing meant. We're actually doing that. There were Christians who chopped off their hands and plucked out their eyes in China because they didn't have teeth. You find people today doing things that are equally as crazy by Western standards. In their situation, it seems, it seems crazy to us that they're doing it. You understand? But in that situation, it's not so crazy. No more crazy than people rolling on the floor screaming like madmen and calling it worship. Now, let's go back to this. What are these gifts? Are they natural gifts? Or are they something that is not natural? To what extent can we say that your gifts are a natural talent, and to what extent we say they're something totally apart from a natural talent? Are they simply natural ability sanctified for God? Or is it not so? Look at the book of Acts, please. Chapter 4. Verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They were practicing the gift of teaching, weren't they? They were expounding the scriptures. They were practicing the gift of evangelism. Now, when they say uneducated, you have to understand what it means by uneducated. Because Jews had to read the Torah, they were the only fully literate society in the ancient Near East. In the Greco-Roman world, literacy and numeracy were the domain of the educated, the privileged, the aristocracy. Okay? The Jews had a much higher level of education anyway, because everybody was literate. And everybody studied Torah. So when it says they are uneducated, it doesn't mean the yobos. It meant in an educated society, they were not educated. You understand? But it doesn't mean they were illiterate or ignorant or anything like this. It does not mean they were ignorant. It just meant that they had no academic training, is what we would consider academic training. But it doesn't mean they were totally uneducated men. By virtue of the fact they were Jews, the average Jew would have been far better educated than the average Roman or Greek, on the average. The Torah gave the Jews a higher level of stamp of social justice and a higher level of education than other societies. God decreed it. However, we see here in verse 13 that their ministry, their gift for this ministry, was not simply human ability. 
It was something that went beyond human ability. It was beyond their human capacity. Why? Because they spent time with Jesus. First Corinthians chapter 1, look at it. Verse 26, for consider your calling, my brethren. There were not many of you who were Etonians or Oxbridge educated. Not many. It is easier for simple people to get saved than sophisticated ones. It is easier for children to get saved than adults. It is easier for uneducated people to get saved than educated. Simple, uneducated people, easier for them to get saved. It's easier for simple people to get saved. But look at verse 13 of Acts 4. If you've been with Jesus, you don't stay that way. You understand? You may be simple when you get saved. It's easier to get saved if you're simple. But once you get saved and you've been with Jesus, you don't stay that way. Unless, of course, you're an Elam or somebody's a God minister. <laughs> Their real problem is not that they're uneducated. Their real problem is that they're not walking with Jesus on the basis of his word. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so simple. They don't stay that way. One of the most blessed privileges I've had as I itinerate is to see the number of gypsies, Romani gypsies, who come to my meetings. In the Midlands, particularly in the Midlands, in the Merseyside. To see people who their whole lives, middle-aged men and women, were illiterate. They couldn't read. They could not read until they, they knew how to count. <laughs> But they couldn't read until they got saved. Then they want to read the Bible. They learn how to read. But then some of them want to know Midrash and what does this mean in Hebrew? Where can I learn Greek? I'm telling you. That's authentic. They don't stay that way. If somebody stays that way, if somebody gets saved and stays a simpleton, it means they're not really walking with Jesus. When people spend time with Jesus, they become much more sophisticated because they have God's wisdom. Not educated in the world sense, but educated in the wisdom of God at least. Now, we can see then that a gift for a ministry is not simply a natural talent. It's something that goes beyond a natural talent. However, does that mean it is totally alien from a natural talent? Well, let's look at this a bit more. Today we have the tragedy of people saying, I don't want an intellectual Christianity. I don't either. But that's not to say there's not an intellectual dimension to God's word. Paul says, Peter says, this is complicated. Let Paul, let Paul explain it. You look at the people that God has used so often, there were people who had to be academically trained to do what God was calling them to do. God could not have used Peter to do what Paul did. Moses was trained in the wisdom of Egypt before he was in the wisdom of God, wasn't he? You think Luther and, and, and Zwingli could have done what they did if they were uneducated men? No, they couldn't. The reason they were able to do what they did was because they were educated men. Erasmus, the same. The pre-Nicene fathers, like Irenaeus, the same. This idea that something having intellectual credibility means it's unspiritual is just as stupid and unbiblical on one extreme as an intellectual faith is on the other. 
You find people with an intellectual faith. Jerusalem is alive with them. All these guys doing postdoctoral research, stepping on top of each other. Most of them have never led a Jew to Christ, and not only that, wouldn't know how to do it. That's one extreme. The other extreme are people who are anti-anything to do with anything that's other than simpleton. Our faith is simple. However, once you enter the room by faith, there's a lot of things in it. Getting saved is easy. You walk through the door and you're in the room. That's easy. That's a simple faith. Walk through the door. A child can do it. But once you come in the room, there's a whole lot of things in here. Gee, a piano. How do you play a piano? Oh, gee, a recording machine. I wonder how it works. An overhead projector. Gee, how does that work? So many of our, not people today, but our leaders, they've never done anything but walk through the door. (laughs) In other words, what they mean is, I'm a moron. I know I'm a moron. Therefore, you should be a moron, because if you're not a moron, you're going to find out I'm a moron. (laughs) As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood they were uneducated and untrained, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. No... Someone's gifting for the ministry is not their human ability. However, is there a relationship between human ability and gifting? Quite a question. Let's look at the book of Exodus. We read the story of people like Bezalel in Exodus 36. Now Bezalel, you know, he alive and every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction. It says that for them to do physical things, it would appear... God gave them natural human talent. And he gave them what? The Lord gave them the wisdom how to do it. The Lord put the skill. It says literally in Hebrew, a man of a wise heart. Chochmah. Your natural abilities... As a musician, as a scientist, as somebody who can sew, as somebody who can build, as somebody who can fix automobiles, God also gave your natural gifts for His purposes to build His kingdom. That's why you see the qualifications for being a deacon are virtually the same as for being an elder. We make a distinction between the physical and the spiritual, or between the secular and the spiritual. God does not. The Jewish mind that produced the scriptures, those people, did not draw a distinction between the secular and the spiritual. The Bible never draws a distinction between the secular and the spiritual. What the Bible draws a distinction between is the eternal and the temporal. Things of eternal significance and things that are of temporal significance. You can say, well, I'm going to die someday and so is the baby. So therefore, when I'm taking care of this little baby, it really doesn't matter. It's not spiritual. 
But the Bible says, do all things for the glory of God. When you do it as unto the glory of God, something is of eternal significance. How well you took care of that baby is something that God is going to ask you and account for. You understand? We make these distinctions between the secular and the spiritual. The Bible doesn't. Only between the eternal and the temporal. Like human government is temporal. It's separate from God's eternal government. It's something that's going to end. But it says that even Christians who are in government should do it as God's ministers, doesn't it? You understand? So, we see that God gives natural abilities the same as He gives spiritual ones. But what's the relationship between the two? If on one hand He gives natural gifts and spiritual ones, but a spiritual gift is not the same as a natural one, what's the relationship? Turn to Matthew 25, please. Verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Each according to his own ability. Do you see that? He gives the talents according to your ability. In other words, the giftings God gives you or in accordance with your human capacity. Peter was a fisherman. Fishing teaches an awful lot about evangelism. Patience. Bait. Where are the fish biting? When is a good time? When is a bad time? How do you handle a boat in a storm? How do you take the good fish and throw the bad ones back? Fishing teaches a lot about evangelism. It's true his ways are not our ways, but that does not mean they're not practical. You understand? They're very practical. Peter had that ability. Do all things to the glory of God. If you're faithful in your physical work, then God will use you in a spiritual one. Once he learned how to fish where Jesus told him how to cast his nets, then he was able to evangelize where the Holy Spirit told him to evangelize. You understand? When the deacons are appointed to do the physical work in Acts chapter 6, we see those deacons becoming the next generation of leaders, don't we? Stephen, Philip. He gives the gifts according to your ability. Yes, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen. He had a Greco-Roman education plus a Pharisaic education from the school of Hillel, disciple of Gamaliel. Yes, he had all the credentials. He was an Etonian. He was Oxbridge. He had everything. His talent was in accordance to his ability. Where much is given, much is expected. You don't know somebody by their gifts. You know them by their fruits. The anointing is to do with Jesus, not us. The oil does not touch the flesh in Psalm 133, remember? In other words, a mother with a Down syndrome child, that's her ministry. If she loves and cares for that child and carries that burden with the help of the Lord faithfully, in God's economy, in His sight, in His way of reasoning, she is as great in the kingdom as an evangelist or a missionary who goes down to Venezuela. You understand? It's not what your gift is or what your talent is. It's what you do with what you're given. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. A, minister, a missionary in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait... I think of C.L. Marsh, he was a missionary to the Muslims in Chad. His first 14 converts were martyred. 
by the Muslims in Chad. Somebody in Saudi Arabia, I know a case of a missionary in Saudi Arabia, after 30 years, he had five committed converts. After 30 years' work, five. But you know what? In his circumstances, five people in Saudi Arabia, that's 50,000 in Devonshire. You understand? He was faithful to what God called him to do. God's not, God's barometer is not numbers or gifts or talents, it's faithfulness. The guy who had one, the guy who had two, and the guy who had five. Notice it was the guy who had one who buried it. There's three kinds of Christians. There's an investor. There's an interest bearer. And there's a loser. Somebody who invests their gifts and gives the Lord a big return has the greatest reward. Christians are not judged on the basis of their condemnation, but their reward. You have two words, right? Thronos and Bema. Unsaved people appear before the Thronos. Christians before the Bema, where the Greek uh, kings at the Poluses gave the rewards to those who competed successfully in the Olympics. Interest bearer. Jesus, when he comes back, he's not going to accept anything less than interest. But if somebody just takes whatever talent they have, whatever gift they have, and buries it in the ground, he's not going to accept that. And it's interesting, if the guy only has the one who buries it, people think, well, I can't be an evangelist, I can't be a missionary, I can't be a pastor, so whatever gift I have, I'm just going to bury it, I'm going to let the pastor worry about the rest of it. Who's your evangelist? Reverend Jones. Who's your pastor? Well, Reverend Jones, he went to Bible college. Well, who's your teacher in your church? Well, well, he is Reverend Jones. <laughs> the only thing a pastor is is primus into Paris, the first among equals. The other people should at least be bearing interest. But instead, they're burying their talents. He gives the gifts to each one according to their ability. No, a gift is not human ability, but there is a relationship between your human ability and the gift God gives you. Now, I'm not saying that God cannot take somebody who's nothing and make them something. He does. He did it with the apostles. But the apostles still had the ability, even though they didn't have the privileged socioeconomic background. You understand? D.L. Moody had a fifth grade education. He led over one million people to Christ in Britain and America before the age of mass media. A man with a fifth grade education. In this country, William Carey, an uneducated shoemaker. The man learned like 14 languages. Talent. There is always a relationship between the gifts God gives you and the natural ability. Always. Now, it's not to say if you have natural ability that you're going to automatically go out and do this, that, and the other thing. No. You have to know the preparation and brokenness of God in your life before he's going to be able to, to use you. Think of Paul. He had the background. He had the calling. But it took God years of preparing him and even breaking him. He tried to get it going in Antioch and it didn't, Damascus, and they had to lower him out the, out the gates of the, out the wall, hole in the wall of the city in a basket. Not until God has broke us and broken us and prepared us, so we're going to have it. Yet there will be that relationship. But not only that, let's look further. There will be an accounting. There is nobody who's born again, who's received the gift of the Spirit, who does not have a gift. The saints are judged on the basis of what they did. Each of those churches in Revelation, Jesus judged them on the basis of their works, didn't he? We're not saved by works, but we're judged by it. The judgment of the saints, not the judgment of the lost. We're talking about the judgment of Christians. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What you are doing or what you don't do with your gift is what Jesus is going to look for when he comes back. What is your gift and how have you used it? 
I'm so distressed that so many people are burying their gift. The Lord at least wants you to bear interest. He at least wants you to bear interest. There will be an accounting. I also tremble for those churches which suppress the gifts. Not only are people burying the gifts, but fundamentalist pastors are giving them the shovels to do it. It's frightening. Absolutely frightening. Coming into a building, imagine a body. And you've got a hand on the end of a leg. And another hand instead of a nose. And two hands coming. Everybody was a hand. It's crazy. There's got to be a body. Feet do one thing, hands do another. Nose does another, ears do another. That's the way it is. I don't know what your gift is, but you have one. And what you do with it, and what you don't do with it, is what Jesus is going to want to know when he gets back. Natural abilities? Yes. But spiritual gifting? Yes. One does not equal the other, but there is a relationship and a connection between the two. Now, in our next session, we're going to go through the problem chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. We're going to go to the problem chapters. To understand these problem chapters, there are two points we're going to look at now. The specific and the general is the first. The second is gifts occurring in combination. Alright? So much of the confusion comes over the word prophecy. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 22. We'll come back to this in the next session. Tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but those who believe. But then in verse 24, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. How can an unsaved man be called to account if the gift of prophecy is supposed to be for believers, not unbelievers? And tongues, it seems to contradict itself, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If it says in verse 22 that tongues are a sign, right? Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. How come it says if ungifted Christians come in? We'll come back to that. Prophecy is specific and it's general. The gift of prophecy and true prophecy are two different things. The only thing to prophesy means is to speak God's word. To prophesy means to speak God's word. That's all. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That is talking about the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and consolation. 
But if somebody gives a prediction that's actually from the Lord, they're prophesying, but they're not practicing the gift of prophecy. You understand? They're practicing the gift of the word of wisdom. When you speak God's word under the influence of the Spirit, you're prophesying. Everybody can prophecy in that sense in some way. But we don't all have the gift of prophecy. We don't all have the gift of the word of wisdom. To prophecy is a general term. You can prophecy and give a prophecy. You can prophecy and have a word of wisdom. But specific gift of prophecy has to do not with predicting the future or knowing the mind of God in the matter as that's in that prophetic sense, but to edify, to exhort, and to console. That's the purpose of the gift of prophecy. To edify, to consort, and to console. Much of what people are calling prophecy is not prophecy. It is the word of wisdom, or else a counterfeit. The next thing we have to understand is combination. You can go out and drink some tea. In the tea, you can put milk and make some kind of a homogeneous solution. And you can put sugar in. The sugar, however, remains sugar, and the tea remains tea. For instance, you can have a prophecy in a tongue. Paul says, let the one who prays in tongues have another one interpret. There can be a prophetic message in the tongue. On the day of Pentecost, they were praying in tongues, but when the language of was understood, tongues plus interpretation equals a form of prophecy. You understand? In a general sense. A word of wisdom may also include a word of knowledge. A prophecy may include a word of wisdom. An interpreted tongue may be a prophetic message. Gifts occur in combination. When you read Corinthians, it makes that pretty clear. Let another interpret. Again, we're trying to define things on the basis, or to categorize them on the basis of how they operate, because that's what our Western minds have been trained to do. The Scriptures categorize them on what the aims are, what's God trying to achieve in it. He categorizes or classifies the things differently. He's thinking about what is the aim of these gifts, and he categorizes them that way. That's why you see in 1 Corinthians, verse 29, all are not apostles, all are not prophets, all are not teachers, are they? But then it says, all are not miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All don't speak with tongues. It mixes them up. We're the ones who want to draw this radical separation. God doesn't. It's our Western minds that demand it. Corinthians, Romans, doesn't allow for that kind of separation. These things occur in combination with each other. Now, you may have a word of knowledge that's nothing more than a word of knowledge, but very frequently a word of knowledge will be accompanied by a prophecy, something to console or exhort somebody. Brother, sister, I know you are having this problem. I know what's going on, and it's, how did you know that? I didn't, but God told me. The word of knowledge. However, all of a sudden, they say, but the Lord has also told me that, that, that and this is going to be all right, and this is going to happen. Word of wisdom. 
Be encouraged, my son. Be encouraged, my daughter. So I am with you and I'm not forsaken. A prophecy. You understand? These things occur in combination. It's our Western minds that are trying to destroy the, draw the distinction. You have the cup of tea. You've got the tea. You've got the milk. You've got the sugar. Yes, you can distinguish between what's the tea, what's the milk, what's the sugar. But when you put the sugar in the tea and you put the milk in the tea and you stir it up and drink it, does it make a difference to you? No, because you're interested in the aim, how it tastes. You understand? Think about it in those terms. The academic side is there, but that's not the real focus. The real focus is always the aim. We have to understand the specific and the general, particularly concerning the word to prophesy, and we have to understand that the gifts occur in combination.